Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The social theorist Charles Taylor says that part of what characterizes a secular age is that there are multiple competing options for what constitutes the good life. The sociologist Hartmut Rosa argues that modern citizens most often locate that good in optionality, speed, and reach, which creates a phenomenon he calls social acceleration. Professor of Theology Andrew Root explores the ideas of Taylor, Rosa, and social acceleration in his work, including in his book, The Congregation in a Secular Age. While Andy largely looks at social acceleration through the lens of its effect on churches, it has implications for every aspect of our lives, from work to family. We explore those implications today on the show, unpacking the way that seeking stability through growth leads to feelings of depression, exhaustion, and discombobulation, how we collect possibilities while not knowing what we're aiming for, and how we've traded the burden of shoulds for the burden of coulds. We discuss how social acceleration has shifted the horizons and significance of time, how time has to be hollowed out to be sped up, and how the solution to the ill effects of social acceleration isn't just slowing down, but finding more resonance. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash socialacceleration. All right, Andy Root, welcome to the show. Hey, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you are a theologian who has written books about ministering in a secular age. And I wanted to bring you on the show because your approach to your work is guided by the lenses of two philosophers, sociologists who I've enjoyed reading. And what they've done is they try to explain why we can sometimes feel discombobulated in the modern world, not only spiritually, but just in our family life or work life. And these two thinkers are Charles Taylor and Hartmut Rosa. For those who aren't familiar, let's talk about Charles Taylor first. For those who aren't familiar with Charles Taylor, what's his big idea? Yeah, it's a great question, and and it's a pretty hard one. I mean, in some sense, he has, like, basic big ideas, but then he writes, like, you know, six, 700-page books just focusing on one of the big ideas. So his, I guess you would say his later work, though, he's, like, 90 years old, and he's still publishing books. So, you know, the ideas are still flowing out of this guy, which is commendable in its own right. But the work that I've dealt a lot with is a book he has called A Secular Age, which he's really trying to explore – well, like you said, setting this up, what it feels like to live in a secular age. And his big question that he's he's really trying to explore, which takes up 770 pages, just one question, is why if you just 
with a big round number, say 1500, in the year 1500 in the West, was it nearly impossible not to believe in God? I mean, to live in any of the kind of Western civilizations, Western societies, you had to believe in God to function in the society. And then a short 500 years later, it's completely flipped. And particularly outside America, you know, if you live in France or one of the Scandinavian countries, it's much easier to not believe in God than to believe in God. So he really wants to kind of explore that that big idea. And I've picked that up and dealt with it quite a bit is how do we get to this kind of society where this thing flips on its head? Well, for Taylor, what does it feel like? What does it mean to live in a secular age? Because I think we everyone hears that idea and they might have their idea. It's like, well, you believe in science and not God. Yeah, yeah. But it, Taylor had a bigger idea of what it meant to be secular. Yeah, I mean, he thinks, I guess this is what philosophers do, and maybe this is why I'm addicted to these these folks, is that they think that it's very easy to think to have our thinking be misconstrued on what's actually going on and that that may make situations worse or may you know lead us to want solutions that actually aren't much of solutions at all. And he thinks when it comes to secular that we usually define it as fewer and fewer people going to church. I mean, just to be its most base, you know, like there are just fewer people going to religious communities. Religious institutions are are weaker. That's usually how we think of it. You know, like I, I teach at a seminary. Seminaries are closing all over the place. There's open pulpits everywhere. My gosh, congregations are being turned into microbreweries. Like these seem to be the signs of what it means to live in a secular age. And Taylor thinks that's not quite right, that that is an issue. Obviously, that that has happened. The, the statistics bear that out. But really inside the kind of DNA of what it means to be a late modern person or live in a late modern society isn't that people are just less affiliated. What it really means is that belief itself becomes contested. Or another phrase he uses that I find quite provocative and interesting is he says belief becomes fragilized, that we all live with this sense of a fragilization of belief. And that's what it feels like. Like that's what it feels like to live in a secular age is that you're very aware that there are people living with different stories or different belief systems that are functioning okay. Or you're very aware that you can go a long way without really even thinking about which one you believe. I mean, one of the ways I explain this is you can even hear, you know, pastors and others say things like, well, I'm taking a break from God for a while. And the fact that you can say that and that when you do say it, people don't find it completely incoherent or, you know, like saying, two plus two equals, you know, 11 banana, like it, that it has some coherence to it, that that you could say, I'm taking a break from God and people could be, like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's what this kind of secular age is, that, that God becomes a kind of option, that belief becomes individualized. And even when we hold on to, to certain beliefs, they're fragile and, and they're until further notice. Right. So all beliefs, not just belief in God, all beliefs are contested and contestable. That's right. Yeah. So even if your belief system is you don't believe in God, you know, that you that you do completely believe in a, a scientific universe or you're, you're a kind of artist who just simply doesn't think that there needs to be any theistic center to the world or anything like that. His point is whatever your belief system is, you'll find that fragilized too. So even if your belief system is that you don't believe anything, that you'll have, he says this very provocative thing that you'll have these moments where you find that unbelief fragilized and you'll have these moments of believing. There are these moments where people are yearning for meaning and even when they don't believe they find themselves encountered or or having at least open to the possibility that there's something bigger reaching for them yeah taylor thinks people have that inherent desire for the transcendent but today in a secular age there's all these different beliefs 
uh, which he calls cross pressures. There's all these different things that you could believe in. You can believe that. You can believe this. You have to ask yourself, well, should I go to church? Should I not? Should I find meaning in my career or maybe the self-help book? And it can, you know, really leave you feeling discombobulated. You know, and then before, I mean, if you go back to the 1500s, people were just like, well, you just go to church and believe in God and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And th- and those were unthought. Like you couldn't really even think yourself into that. You just, this is the way you talk, the way you dressed, it all kind of perpetuated this sense of belief. And I think exactly what you're saying is, it, it is really embedded in even his bigger idea, if you will, which is that human beings are moral creatures, that we all live inside of some stories of what it means to be good of what it means to live a full life and that we become a kind of evaluator of different ways of living. And the point is in 1500, the options of having what he calls a strong evaluation or the the, the kind of measure uh, in the story of what makes life full and good, there there was basically one. I mean, it was embedded within the church in some ways, or it was embedded within the crown or, or the church as it related to you. But now when you enter into a late modern world, there seems to be all sorts of options that could deliver a good life that could help you reach your your deepest desires. And so that is the cross pressure. Like, is it yoga that does it? Or is it a Catholic form of the Eucharist? Or is it... Uh, just the drive in the rituals of getting your kid into an elite university, or is it hiking in the mountains? All these things are now in some sense relativized and, and similar, and, and you have to kind of negotiate them, but you're compelled to do so because you are a moral believing animal. You have to have some larger kind of moral vision that you're engaging. And so he thinks this just becomes a different kind of way we do this now, that we don't do it inside of just one or two stories that are given to us, there's there's just a buffet table of spiritualities that we can pick from to try to live our, our most full life. Yeah, choose your own adventure. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Harmut Rosa. Where does he pick up where Taylor left off? Well, he picks up exactly where we just left off. Um, in many ways, the secularization project, Hartmut Rosa, who is uh, this German social theorist. So we should say like Charles Taylor's Quebecois. He's taught at McGill his his whole career for the most part, educated at Oxford, but is a Canadian, you know, is a, is a, a, a Quebec Canadian. And that's part of his story is looking at how Quebec used to be really the most churched environment in the West in the middle of the century, and then became one of the most secular in a very, very fast time. You know, so that's Charles Taylor. But Hartmann Rosa is a German, and he he wrote his dissertation on Taylor, and he really picked up this idea of what it means to be a moral creature, that all human action is based in these moral visions, so that we're always kind of searching for the good life. And we we are never kind of, I mean, we could be passive in certain ways, but in, in other ways, we're always active. Our actions are always directed towards some vision, some horizon we have of what it means to live a good life. And so that's where re- really Rosa picks up Taylor, is trying to make this argument that the ways we act in the world are embedded in implicit sometimes explicit senses of what we think the good life is. Well, in his book, uh, Rosa's book, Social Acceleration, he makes the case that one of the defining features of modern life is that life has sped up. What does he mean by life speeding up? 
Yeah, he thinks this is the, the, the most common condition of late modernity or really the whole modern project from the beginning is to try to go faster. I mean, that, that seems somewhat simplistic, but the more you, the more he talks about it, the more it becomes really quite convincing. So he says it's just this continued speeding up, this continued accelerating process. So somehow within our own imaginations, we get this sense that what it means to live well, what it means to live a good life is to live a fast life, if you will. This happens at the individual level, but also at the whole societal level, so that there is this sense of acceleration in, in all these forms. When you hear his argument initially, you're like, oh yeah, that, that completely makes sense. I mean, just look at our technology. I have to get a new phone you know, every year, every two years, because the technology keeps, you know, going faster and faster. Or we just think of the Moore's processing law works where, you know, the microprocessing doubles or triples or whatever it is every 15 months. And it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But Rose's point is it's not just technology that accelerates, but it's also our social lives accelerate in the sense of our norms and our moral visions and then just the pace of our lives. So it's just this constant demand um, to go faster and faster. And he thinks this is the inherent good that modern society keeps lifting up, that we have to go faster and faster. We have to do more and more. And this really frames our imaginations of what a good life is and even what a good society is. Well, yeah, this idea that not only technology is getting faster, technology is allowing us to do things a lot faster. So like you said, new technology is coming out all the time. With AI, you're seeing that you know, every day you're seeing some sort of new app that's, you know, using AI, but then the technology drives social change. The technology allows us to do more in a single unit of time. So that's why I can feel like it's time speeding up because you're doing a lot more within an hour because you can communicate with a whole bunch of people, email, do group me chat. You can shop for clothes and for groceries all within an hour. And that, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been, that's a day right there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what he thinks, you know, like we keep getting told by Silicon Valley or, you know, other kind of innovation hubs that these breakthroughs will give us more time and they're time saving breakthroughs. And it, it never really works that way. You know, like the more time saving breakthroughs we have, the more even our refrigerators are on Wi-Fi, the, the more hurried our lives feel. And his point is what they give us is not actually more time. They give us the capacity to do more actions inside our units of time. So just like you're saying, it allows us to multitask at a at an incredible speed. It's, it's really interesting because I think one of the things he wants to say is that what really draws us into this acceleration, why we why we concede our wills to it in, in many ways is because we think ultimately, though it, it may be burning us out, we think it's good. And one of the things that it delivers to us is a sense of reach, that we can reach the world more, that that we feel like, you know, and I think social media is a good example of this. Like, it'll be very interesting right now as we're discovering and some states are looking at suing Meta um, because they know or they hid that it was pretty destructive to adolescent girls particularly. And yet it will be really hard to wean our society off of it because it does give you a sense of being able to reach the world, to have your tweet or your post get out there and, and connect with all, all of these people. And we still feel like that's good. So he has this kind of sense that what the modern world does is speed us up, but it also has this desire to give us more reach, to make the world reachable. And that is a good, and that's very appealing to us, but it turns on us and it, uh, it, it, it kind of promises us something and then bites us pretty hard. 
Okay, so Rosa would argue that in modern life, the good that we're looking for, so anciently, you know, 1500 years ago, the good would be whatever God ordains as good. Now, Rosa would say, well, no, actually, we've replaced that. One of the things that we've replaced God with is reach. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. In, in Rosa's, it's interesting. I mean, he, I think he's been very, uh, well, I mean, I've used his work to try to make theological assertions, and he's kind of surprised at how many other theologians are interested in his work. So unlike Taylor, who's just a very explicit Catholic believer, Rosa, who is a, a, a kind of German believer and churchgoer, doesn't really talk about it much. So he doesn't really get into these what's what we've replaced God with, but he would say that our good life isn't framed around a kind of transcendent quality as much as it's framed around the way we can kind of optimize ourselves to be able to embrace and reach the world. So there is a kind of sense of a God quality to being able to reach the world in a way that uh, that we hope will bring the world alive, but he thinks it actually deadens the world. Okay, so by reach, we're talking like we call it worldly success. You have a career, you have money, you could have reach or influence on social media with the Instagram followers. And that that's what a lot of people are, are looking for. Yeah. I mean, like he, he'll, he'll say, you know, like one of the reasons we want money so bad isn't just even for money or even for status, but there also is this appeal. Like if you have enough money, then like Tokyo is within reach. All you have to, you just can book a ticket. I mean, if you have enough money, you could fly private. It allows the world to become within it, it, to make it haveable. And that is really appealing. And, you know, what you're saying earlier is that no medieval person would ever think that that was even possible, that you could somehow have the world, you know, that you could reach it and cross time and space so quickly to be able to, I don't know, like kind of suck the marrow of its goodness out. But Rose's point again is that if we're not really careful, this becomes a, a deep temptation that boomerangs on us. Yeah. And then the way we achieve reach, you know, like we call imminent reach like here in this life is by doing lots of things really fast, getting as much done as possible. That's the social acceleration part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the winners will be the fastest in, in many ways is what the kind of modern assertion says. And Rose is trying to show us how deep this is in our consciousness, how deep it is in even our structures in our society. Well, in your book, The Congregation in a Secular Age, you explore how this social acceleration that we're experiencing in, in modern life, what it's doing to church congregations and in individuals. And I think it's interesting when you're looking at this at a, at a church congregation because you can really see the effects on groups, not just church groups, but like, I, I think churches are like the canary in the coal mine for a lot of other social groups. And one thing you talk about in the book is that when you talk to pastors about their church and how their church is doing, they often say that their congregation is depressed. What do they mean by their congregation is depressed? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon because this is the boomerang effect that Rosa wants to get to is he thinks, and it's a very interesting perspective that I think he's really right on about, is that all modern institutions stabilize themselves by growth or what he calls dynamic stabilization. So, you know, he says a company, I mean, in our conversation right now, a church, a denomination, a nation state, for goodness gracious, that it stabilizes itself by continuing to grow. And so, you know, a company only is stable if it's 
growing by you know 15% or 20%. It's only investable if it's growing by 30%. And even every politician runs on, I can grow the economy. You know, Vote for me. I know how to grow the economy. So his, his point is that this dynamic stabilization is what holds us, what makes an institution feel like it's, it's alive. But he says it's insidious. And I think he's really right about that. So if your company, if we just stay at that level, your company grows by 30% this year, you cannot, it, the structures will not allow you to say, oh, we've grown 30% this year. How about next year we only focus on growing 5%? And then after two years, we'll be up 25%. That'll be good. No, if you grow 30% this year, the next year you have to grow 31% or 32%. So it never stops. The need to continue to grow and then grow more can never stop. And if you get two years of plateaued growth or only one or 2% growth, then you're dying. You're, you're dead. And if your company isn't only growing at three, four percent, you should just sell your company for parts. Like it has no value. And his point is, is that this just frames even our own individual imaginations. And so first of all, I mean, that that kind of dynamic stabilization finds its way into how we evaluate a good church. A church is a place that should be beyond the kind of corporatized dynamic stabilization kind of model. And yet we also are tempted that the only ones that have a future will take on this very shape and be able to grow, grow, grow some more and and keep pushing to optimize growth. But Rose's point is that there's got to be a speed limit to that. You know, like it's that dynamic stabilization that demands that we have to keep going faster and faster. And his point is how insidious this is, is that um, not only do you have need to grow more, but you feel like you have to expend just as much energy, if not more energy, to just stay in the same place. To, if you don't do that, you're going to lose. And I think even fa- at the family level, parents feel that. Like we have to keep our kids involved in like 10 different things and driving them all around the state for different activities. And if we don't, it's not even that we think our kid's going to be a first round draft pick on a, in some sport. It, it, they just won't be able to play middle school baseball with their friends, like just to keep some of the goods, you have to go faster and faster. And Rose's point is, and he really is building off this Parisian scholar named Alan Ernberg, who's written this really provocative book called The Weariness of the Self, which is a kind of genealogy of depression. And his point is, is that inside this kind of push for continued acceleration, when you run out of energy, to continue to try to optimize, to get more, to keep to keep at where you are at now, that you have to do more just to stay in the same place, that eventually when you run out of energy, you find yourself sliding into a state of, of kind of despondency and depression. So he has this provocative quote Ernberg does where he says he thinks depression is not an ailment of unhappiness, but an ailment of change. In other words, the need to continue to change and change more and optimize that change sucks the energy out of us. And when we can't get enough energy to keep optimizing, we slide into the state of despondency. And that is where I see a lot of Protestant churches, is that they all feel like we need to change, we're falling behind, we're losing resources, our reach is less and less, and uh, yet that means they have to do more with less, and they have to really accelerate, and it leads to a a deep kind of existential fatigue. Yeah, I think people have experienced on an individual level where you just think, man, in order for me to to thrive in this world, I have to not only, I have to keep doing the things I have been doing, but I have to do even more. And then you start feeling like, um, was it Alice in Wonderland with the Red Queen, where you just have to like run faster and faster, but you just stay in place. And then it gets to the point where like, well, is it even worth the effort if I'm not going to make any progress? If I had to expend so much energy, I just might as well just give up. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think we see that broadly across society in many ways. Yeah. And so in these churches that you visit, like one church you talk about, it looked like a vibrant church. They were, you know, adding wings to the building. Uh, they had all these great programs in place, but the pastor said like the members just aren't engaged. They're kind of just checked out and going through the motions. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was, it was that pastor who, who said this the first time. He's like, if I had one word to describe my church, I would just say we're depressed. And this was a church in, in one of the Dakotas. And he's like, you know, we're, we're still in the upper Midwest here. People still show up on Sunday mornings, but they're just, they're just tired. And if there's any kind of sense of pulling together to be community and kind of living together, there just becomes this utter kind of blank lack of energy. They're willing to go through some of the kind of civic religion footsteps and, and, and just follow some of those patterns. But when it comes to anything more than that, he's like, there's just no energy left. And uh, I think he was really pointing at how we feel this at our individual and familial and just societal levels of just feeling like we don't have energy to keep up, to stay in the same place, as you said. Yeah. And he also talked about the members of the church. No one feels like they have the energy to actually affect the change they feel needs to be done to keep the to keep the church growing, that dynamic stabilization going on. Part of the problem is, is a lot of these people at these churches, they're involved in other stuff. Because again, we're in a, a secular age where church life isn't the only thing that you look at for a good life. You know, your kids are playing basketball, there's clubs you could belong to, CrossFit you could do, et cetera. And so some, you talk about some of these parents, they, they expect that the church they go to have this really vibrant and active youth program, youth ministry, but their kids don't even go to it because their kids are playing basketball, but they demand that they, they just want to, they want to know that their church has that there for them if they ever can make it to church. And pastors just feel overwhelmed because it's like, well, parents expect this, but we don't have the resources to provide that for them because the parents aren't there because they're off doing other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this takes us back to kind of Rose's point about the good life, where he says that the, inside this kind of accelerating mode, the good life gets framed as what he calls the AAA, which is availability, accessibility, and attainability. So there's a sense where all that you're saying in the context of a family, it will be really hard to convince a parent in a, in a kind of an unthought way, like not in a, in a reflective way, but as a kind of reflex, it'll be very strange for a parent to have a reflex where church is more important than say AAU basketball or being part of the drama troupe or learning a, a musical instrument because those things have some kind of uh, resource value that can give your kid more availability, accessibility, and attainability to the resources that they can cash in to live their dream where, you know, being part of a youth group or, you know, learning Luther's small catechism or going through confirmation class or whatever, those are good. I mean, that, that'd be great if we could add that to our child's life. Like, you know, there's value added there, but it doesn't seem in a kind of tacit way, doesn't seem to deliver these resources towards a good life. It doesn't seem to, to really play the tune of availability, accessibility, attainability of these kind of resources that will help my kid live a good life. And what Rosa says, which I think is really informative for us broadly, is he's like, you know, we're weird, us late modern people. We're like painters who um, 
keep getting our easel set up the right way and going back to the store and buying new paintbrushes and then mixing colors and then mixing them again. And then, oh, and then going and hearing there's a new kind of paintbrush out. So go buying that and, and then kind of moving our easel again. And we're very into all the accoutrements of painting, but what we never do is paint. So we're, we want to give our kids all these resources, all of this access to a good life, but we almost never tell them what it means to live a good life. And so living a good life takes on the most content it takes on is, you know, live your dream, whatever your dream is, you know, go for it. And we're driving all around the state for all these activities so that you could live whatever dream you want to in the future. And so there's a kind of contentlessness of this, but there's this accelerated mode of just try to accrue as many resources as you can and cash those in. And my big perspective when it comes to products and congregational life is that we tend to feel ourselves in a kind of resource desert and we often play the game of resources and then we'll lose every time. And yet both Rosa and Taylor want to remind us that trying to play this resource game will, well, will give us more and more of an imminent frame and it will eventually burn us out and push us into a a sense of despondency where it will perpetuate the imminent frame because it will feel like the world isn't alive. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. 
ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com AOM. Masterclass.com AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And a related point you make in the book is that the speeding up of time and the pressure to always be growing, it not only makes you depressed, it just you just feel tired and overwhelmed. So maybe you want to go to church or you want to take part, you know, some other organization or interest, but you just you feel like you don't have the time for it. You know, people just feel like they're busy, uh, that there's too many other things going on in their life. But you point out that, you know, if you look at time studies that people have done, people today have more free time than previous generations did. So people do have enough hours in the day, but it's more like it's a bandwidth problem, right? There's so many options we're thinking about doing. We just, we feel really tired even when we're not doing them. Yeah. And, and you carry the burden of of really articulating, I mean, this takes us back to Taylor a little bit. You carry the burden of living an authentic life that is measured by you yourself. So there's this kind of transition that other social theorists that Rosa draws on particularly have talked about this shift that we used to live in a should-based society. Like you should follow the Ten Commandments. You should obey the laws of your society. You should do what your parents told you. You should follow your ancestors. But that really we don't live under shoulds as much anymore. I mean, obviously, in some ways, they're still there, but we don't feel the burden of those shoulds anymore. But we do live under a burden, and the burden has shifted into could. And people feel quite guilty, not because they've broken some should, but because they didn't optimize their could. Oh, I could have. I could have been the one that started that business. Oh, I could have. I could have uh, started that podcast. I could have finished the degree and look where I would be. I, I could have started the restaurant. I, you know, I could have. I could have. I could have. And they live under that kind of burden of the could. And yeah, and I think that's really kind of where people feel just absolutely exhausted and really quite guilty inside of the fact that they weren't able to optimize uh, their could. So there is more time in some sense, but you feel more exhausted because 
what used to be kind of offloaded onto the should in, in the inside the rituals and the practices of living in a should-based society now all lands on your shoulders and you have to figure this out and you have to figure out who you're going to be and what your identity is and what how you're going to live your own life authentically inside of all the coulds that are are before you and how are you going to take more w's than l's on all of these coulds that uh you could make out of your life yeah Kierkegaard would call that the despair of possibilities all that coulding Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And then Rosa calls this feeling of, you know, this sort of guilt that you could be doing more with your life. He calls it time sickness. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zakrankite. Um, I don't know if that's original to, to him, but he, yeah, he draws on this concept of that we have a kind of sick, a time sickness. Another thing you talk about in the book is that uh, with social acceleration, it has been shrinking the way we think. It's been shrinking our time horizons. And you talk about there's been these three shifts you can see throughout history. It shrunk from intergenerational to generational to intragenerational. Walk us through that that sequence. Yeah, and as I understand, that is original to Rosa, and it's a sense that you know, in, in, in being a theologian and putting this in a kind of historical sense of the church makes it, I think, sing in, in a in a certain way. But that we used to live in a deep kind of perspective of intergenerational, and now we say intergenerational, and we think, oh, in a church there should be six-year-olds and 60-year-olds sharing space together and, you know, reading the Bible or something like that. And that's not what he means. He means we used to live with this deep sense that even the dead were not dead, but that they had given us these practices. So even a, a church that where we buried our saints were right next to the place we worship because they were still worshiping too as we at cross generations were uh, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ or whatever. There's a deep sense that you were living in footsteps with your fathers and your mothers and your ancestors. There was a sense that time was intergenerational. And if you were going to marry someone, it was an intergenerational reality that way. But he says, once the modern era comes, that gets shifted. So time is not kind of thought on the horizon of intergenerational, but becomes thought of as generational. And the example I use in the book is, you know, Kennedy's speeches in the 1960s, you know, are like, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, essentially saying in your generation, in your generation, in your lifetime, what can you do for your country? Or when he says, we're going to put a man on the moon, he means we're going to do this in this generation, you know, where someone in intergenerational time, there would be a kind of apocalyptic eschatological longing for what will be, but no, now it needs to happen now. And that makes sense because we're now citizens, you know, we're citizens who will vote and it will be important what we do with our lifetime. And part of my point is like the institutional structures we have, particularly within Protestantism, but I think within all kind of Christian life is really built for generational time, like particularly the mainline denomination, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, all their structures are built for generational time, that you will get married fairly young, that you will have basically one job, that you will have one partner, um, and that your kids will grow up, go to high school, and you know, go, you know, you, that, that kind of basic 1950s, 1960s life that you'll have that. That's a generational experience. But Rose's point is we now enter into a time towards the very end of the 20th century, into the 21st century, where we do kind of think you can live more lifetimes than one, you know, that people do. I mean, it's rare now for people to to stay with one partner their whole life, particularly even rarer to stay at one job their whole life. And 
intergenerational time, like you work the same land that your father and his father and his father worked. Now you quit a job and take another job, start one business. And, and, and so you can live multiple lives. And, and my point is, it's kind of structurally, our religious lives are just not really shaped for this intragenerational, the, the fact that you can live multiple lives that you, uh, you know, that you can be living one life and then go through a divorce and move to Miami and have a very different kind of life. And, and that does really change our imagination of what it means to kind of faithfully be part of a, a church, a congregation, what religion is for. Yeah. I, I saw that intergenerational thinking. I went to a, there's a monastery here in Oklahoma, Clear Creek Abbey. I went there to spend the night with some friends, read Thomas Aquinas. But while we were there, the the abbot took us on a tour of the grounds and he's showing us the cathedral and it's like halfway done. The outside's done, but nothing else has been inside. And they're still working on other parts of the monastery. And we asked him like, well, how long is this going to take? And he's looked, he's like, oh, about 500 years. And I was like, and I, he just said it sort of matter of fact, but he had that intergenerational thinking. And that was really profound. Was like, man, it left me thinking like, what's my 500? Do I have a 500 year project? And I said, I probably don't. I probably should get a 500 year project. And to your point about how things have shifted from generational to intragenerational, this idea of living more than one life. This is again, this is social acceleration. Not only trying to cram more into our hours, we're trying to cram more into a single life that we have. It is interesting to think about, you know, even even our building projects, you know, that, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we really forget this, and this kind of connects us to Taylor too, is that Notre Dame and Chantchapelle and the, that island in, in, uh, in Paris, they're both built as reliquies. I mean, they're built because King Louis has uh, Jesus' crown of thorns. One of the crusaders brings Jesus' crown of thorns back. And so they build these incredibly beautiful, massive, articulate, intricate buildings, all to house this holy thing. And we tend to build buildings for their function, you know, not, and that's how we justify the spending, not because uh, they're going to house some kind of holy thing, or it's going to take, we don't even, you know, we're going to start building it, not knowing, like in Florence, how we're going to, how we're going to, we don't even know how to build a dome that could actually cover this, but that's, that's okay, because it's going to take us 500 years. We're now at a point where, we think like, well, if this doesn't have payoff in 10 years, if it doesn't have payoff in five years, then this is a waste of time. You know, why would I wait that long? It's a very different kind of mode of what the good is and what a good life is about. And to your point that Protestant churches, maybe just all churches in general, aren't set up for this new time frame of intra-generational time horizon. Some of them have tried to accommodate that. So I think I've seen some of these mega churches where they'll have small life groups that are based on affinities. So it's like, you know, here's, you know, mountain bikers who love Jesus, or here's, you know, CrossFitters who do this. So you're able to capture someone at a moment in their life. And then if they move on to something else, you'll still be able to get them, but it's not working out for them. Cause I guess the wider business world is more effective at that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it had, you know, even, kind of in, in classic kind of frameworks, evangelicals have done far better than mainline at being able to address those realities. And I particularly think mainline Christianity just isn't set up for that. But we do, we we have seen, and as you point to at the end there, is that even evangelical congregations, there's a certain theological problem that comes to bear when we do that. When we kind of turn things into small groups that are based on affinities, there's a certain sense, a certain logic that we concede to that the gospel itself is 
an idea amongst other ideas. So to take us back to Charles Taylor, the problem with it is there's a certain cultural sensitivity. There's a certain missional impulse that's right on, but it tends to say that, well, you're searching for purpose and whether it's Jesus or whether it's hiking or mountain biking or, you know, whatever it might be, fantasy football, they're all essentially the same, but we just think um, they're all on the table of the buffet. We just think that Jesus will really, you know, fill you. Jesus will really be the, the right one, but you have to start by relativizing the gospel to just one other kind of uh, spirituality amongst other spiritualities and really have it play in the kind of cadence of one idea amongst other ideas. And that has its own kind of theological problems that have unfortunately come home to roost in a lot of those communities. Uh, Connected to this intergenerational, generational, intragenerational time horizon, you talk about we've had three big shifts of concepts over time. And the first idea of time that we had up until about 1500 was this idea of sacred time. What did sacred time look and feel like? Yeah. Well, I mean, at at its most sacred time just felt like it was full of, of something significant, you know, that there was this deep sense that, that first of all, it was ordered by God, that God was the one who set sacred time in order. It, it divided our work between those who prayed, those who killed, and, and then those who worked the land, really. So you either could be a peasant, you could be a knight, or you could be a monk you know, in its broadest form. But there was this sense within the sacred that time became full, that it couldn't be accelerated. It was too heavy to be accelerated. It was full of significance. It was full of purpose. And it was ultimately full of very reflections of of divine being and divine act. Then what came after sacred time? Well, I think what ultimately happens, and I guess this is kind of Rose's point, is that the modern project really wants to hollow out time from from being sacred. And this is where I would put where Taylor's secularization project and Rosa start to to really mutually feed each other is that there's this sense that time has to be hollowed out so it can be sped up. And what it needs to be hollowed out from is any divine significance. You know, God becomes a private reality that maybe you hold, but in a larger societal form, that isn't there anymore. So there is a sense where instead of the church keeping time, that it becomes uh, something like the state keeps time. And time really becomes about the kind of acceleration of, of having a society where we, the people, decide the shape of it, not that we have to feel like we have to mirror the divine reality now in our human society. Okay. So the nation state takes over from the church, but then you are, and Hartman argues that another entity has taken over our time and that's Silicon Valley. How did Silicon Valley become the timekeeper for us? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually don't know if Rosa would agree with this or not. This is probably more me than him. I mean, the, the, the progressive move, I think, um, is him. But uh, I, I do see, you know, that there is this sense that someone has to keep time for us and where the church used to keep time and then the state keeps time. But really the post 1960s, really the post 1968 was a critique that you couldn't trust the state, you know, that you couldn't trust the state essentially to keep time to hold the order for you. And that just means that you start to get a a conglomerate of timekeepers and it becomes, you know, kind of certain capitalist forms of of life. The corporation keeps time or the media keeps time or Madison Avenue keeps time. And that pretty much goes for a few decades after the 1960s, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s are kind of a conglomerate of different 
consumer entities that kind of keep time for us. Um, Hollywood keeps time, but eventually I think it's, you know, I'm trying to make an argument that by, you know, the, 2010, maybe earlier, a little earlier than that, you know, by the, by the 21st century, Silicon Valley, it, it becomes, you know, the revenge of the nerds. They take control and they really take control by taking everyone else's business, you know, for the most part. And now we do kind of have this sense that really glues on perfectly with this acceleration that Silicon Valley is the place where one can accelerate their lives and win at acceleration. And so now time really becomes about optimization and innovation and drives towards creativity and individually kind of based creativity. And uh, they keep time for us. They they keep a sense of what it means to live well. And now everyone kind of has their eyes turned towards uh, big tech as the people who uh, kind of dominate. So even on the you know, on the Apple TV Plus morning show, the legacy media is being bought up by big tech people, by the the John Hamm character who's supposed to be Elon Musk. There's a sense that now the most powerful purveyors of our culture become the tech giant, the tech founder. Right. So yeah, Silicon Valley's there. They've introduced one-click shipping, next-day shipping. You can get all sorts of information with just a click. You can do all sorts of things, but it's it's speeding up. Or it, it it feels like we're just rushed and overwhelmed. And so individuals, they're stewing in this Silicon Valley time. They expect things to be fast, frictionless. And so they go to their, could be you know, their church and be like, hey, we need to be doing this as well for the church. It would be awesome if we, we innovated, make things frictionless, a uh, good experience for everybody. And they try to bring that to their church. And then you argue it typically doesn't work out again because you bring in like this time sickness. Like it's just so overwhelming to keep up the pace that people don't feel like they can. So they just feel depressed. Yeah, and the, the depth of the Christian practices can't be frictionless. In many ways, at the heart of the Christian story is a deep friction. You know, it's the, the friction that what you need to save you is outside of you. You can't optimize yourself into it. You know, like the kind of frictionless, smooth kind of dispositions that come out of the shape of Silicon Valley time make the gospel incoherent in certain ways and the practices of silence and prayer and you know confession and, and things like that seem antiquated and potentially problematic to the drives of identity acceleration right so you know if you told a monk a catholic monk hey you need to innovate you need to do more whatever they're like what are you talking i'm on sacred time i don't really care that's probably why they cloister themselves out of the world because they want to stay on that sacred time. But people out here in the lay world, they might not think that's worth going to church or even keep a church going if it gets below a certain amount of membership because it's like, well, what's the point? A monk would say, well, no, the point is you just get together and you do the ritual. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter how many people are here and how much we're growing. Yeah. And that's the complete opposite of dynamic stabilization that for a monk, for a medieval priest, you do the mass. The mass is what stabilizes, you know, that this sacred mass is what does that, not how many people show up. You know, they would be worried if no one was showing up. Maybe the devil had gotten into the village, you know, but for the most part, what they think makes something worth doing isn't that it's one an audience, that it's got reach and people are interested in it. It's the mass itself is what stabilizes. That's a very different imagination. So what do we do about social acceleration? Did Rose have any ideas? <laughs> so it's fascinating because we've been talking all ex- acceleration and Rosa became known in the German press as the slowdown guru because of this. You know, his warnings that we're going too fast, we're pushing for speed. It's a problem. He became known as the slowdown guru. And that 
at first he felt good about that. And then I think he started to realize something was unsettling about it. And what became unsettling is he realized that we do need to slow down. I mean, if you can slow down, slow down, but that won't be enough. That you can't confront the insidious nature of this acceleration by just slowing down. And so the second half of his project has been to look at a different, a very different form of action than acceleration that we might need. And this is what he's called resonance, that he, he does think we still have these experiences, even in a, a modern world where everything is about speed and optimization, where we still do have experiences where we feel connected and drawn in, and we just need to find those again and live with those again. He's like, this is an experience of resonance when we see a painting or hear a song or have a deep conversation that opens us up and that connects us. And in those experiences, time doesn't feel accelerated. It feels full. And so he wants to move us into this kind of action he calls resonance. So what what are the factors of like, what makes up, an, what makes an event have resonance? Well, there, he has four of them and they do get a little obscure. I mean, they don't get obscure. It's just, it's such a, an experience that we have that it's sometimes even hard to describe because we, we just have this experience. I mean, he wants to say it's like a, a conversation, a dialogue where we feel both spoken to and we speak. So he says there's this sense of, of feeling um, connected and a sense of feeling efficacy where, uh, again, where we feel called to, but we also have a, a deep sense of being able to respond. And that's not always a good experience. You know, sometimes you go to a movie, he uses this example often, and you come out of it just, you know, having cried through the whole movie. It was the saddest movie you ever saw. And someone asks you, did you like it? And you're like, yes, I loved it. And you loved it not because it was a, a joyful experience necessarily, a happy experience, but because you felt connected. You felt like something called to you that was beautiful or, or moving and you responded in some way. So it has that dynamic of a kind of conversation, of a call and response. But it also then has a dynamic of, of feeling transformed by it, that we leave the experience changed in some way. Maybe it's a, just by degree, but we see the world differently. We recognize something in a new way. But then the fourth one's the most important one, which he wrote a little book to just highlight this because it gets lost, is that the other reality of resonance, and this is very hard for us late moderns, is that it's uncontrollable. And if you try to control it, it goes away. You can have semi-controlled experience, like you go to that movie and you hope that it moves you, but you can't guarantee it will happen. Or like in church life, a worship experience is a semi-controlled experience. The liturgy is semi-controlled, but it's not a controlled experience. There's no guarantee in any Christian theology that if you do the, this liturgy, God will show up. You can't control it. And the same happens in a conversation with a friend. Like you can't, if you go into it saying, I'm going to get something out of this, I'm going to feel this way after this conversation, there's a good bet it will not be that that, you know, it will be, it w it becomes instrumentalized. And that's what he really wants to avoid is this sense that our interactions with the world, and he worries that this happens in acceleration, they all become instrumentalized. And resonance is an experience. It is a relationship with the world, with a piece of art, with another human being, with God that is beyond instrumentalization. It's just becomes an encounter of a full relationship. Yeah. With resonance, it would be like C.S. Lewis says, you have to be surprised by joy, right? Like you yes. just suddenly, you weren't expecting it, but it's a, it's a grace. Again, like in the Christian language, it's a grace. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I think, yeah, you're right. The, the, the us postmodern, modern people, whatever you want to call us, we think we can like, oh, you put this on a schedule. I'm going to have this great moment with my kid and with my spouse. We're going to create the best Christmas in the world and everyone's going to feel great. And then it ends up being like Clark Griswold. Like you tried so hard to make it happen, make the Christmas magic happen, but it ends up being miserable. And then he experiences resonance at the end where the Santa Claus is flying over the, the house aflame. And he, he didn't plan that. Yeah, it was uncontrollable. But this is like the, that Silicon Valley logic again. It's like, okay, we could make an app that could optimize and schedule your resonance experiences. You know, like it, it will be a resonance app and then you'll get on it and then you'll get three hits of resonance a day. And his point is it just does not work that way. You can't control it. It is, like you said with Lewis, you, you get surprised by it. It's an event of encounter. Again, you can put yourself in a in a kind of disposition in a in a kind of place to be open to it, but even doing that doesn't guarantee it's going to happen. And that's hard for us, uh, kind of middle class consumers, is that we we even want to go on our vacations and we're like, "Will you guarantee me that this will be a great experience?" Well, you know, we went to Hawaii and it rained the whole time. We should get a refund. You know, you well, you you can't you can't control it. It becomes uncontrollable. Okay. So unless you're a monk, it's probably impossible to completely escape Silicon Valley time. So we have to live our lives in a way that accommodates to it. Even your church life, you kind of have to accommodate. There's a lot of people are doing all sorts of things outside of church. So you have to schedule things to sync things up with other people. Uh, we have to be efficient and productive. And even I think Rosa would even argue that you probably have to accommodate that to an extent, but how do you find a balance with that and finding moments of sacred time in your life. Yeah, I mean, there is a way that Rosa here is connecting back and kind of echoing Martin Buber's work, which I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know from the kind of the I thou to the out the I it. And I do think he does think you know that you you are going to have some relationships that are relationless. You know, like with a with an airline, when you call an airline to, to change your flight, there isn't a huge sense that that has to be a resonant experience. But we also do need to have the kind of relationships that are full of relationship that aren't instrumentalized. And I think his point is we just need to be in a position and take on the practices and really reframe what we think a good life is that we might be open to those kind of encounters, that we might have the kind of eyes to see them and and be drawn into them. So I you Rose is a good Protestant that way, unlike, you know, he he's, he he doesn't have the kind of Catholic sensibilities of Taylor. So he's very much wants to affirm ordinary life. He just thinks that we lose the gift of ordinary life when our good life becomes framed by acceleration. And he wants he wants us to start framing the good life more around these experiences of resonance and, and discourse and dialogue that are, are much deeper. Well, Andy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Yeah, um, you know, with uh, the risk of performative contradiction, I mean, people can find me on the internet. I have a website that's just andrewroot.org and people can, can find me there. And uh, yeah, that's probably a good place to start. Fantastic. Well, Andy Root, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's been a great conversation. My guest today is Andrew Root. He's a professor of theology and the author of the book, The Congregation in a Secular Age. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, andrewroot.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash social acceleration, where you find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We have a daily option or a weekly option, and they're both free. It's the best way to stay on top of what's going on at The Art of Manliness. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to get us reviewed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.